0: Back everybody, it's episode two, John Glenn versus the world. Season four is underway. Thank you so much, all the people who listened to our first episode, Ohio vs. Watergate. Uh, such a great response and, and really cool episode. Thank you so much. Today we're talking about Colonel John Glenn, a man who embodied the American century. New Court, New Concord, Ohio's own astronaut, Senator Colonel John Glenn. Um, I saw a TV show called American Badasses on and Glenn was one of the finalists and he really was a badass and we'll detail that life um, that really does span almost an entire century he dies in, in 2016 at the age of 95 but he lives through the Great Depression World War II the Korean War the Cold War the space race obviously he's the first man uh, American to orbit the earth in 1962, and then spent a quarter of a century in the United States Senate representing Ohio. We'll talk about those years with with some of our guests. John used to live in uh, Grandview Heights here in Columbus, uh, where I live, and as a school kid, I would see him. He would come come to the elementary school and cast his votes on election day, and we'd all wave and shake his hand. The news cameras would be there every time. But I remember recently when I moved back to Columbus about 10 years ago, I'm stuck behind this car, and it's going 10, 15 miles an hour. And, and I did nor, don't normally do this, but I, I honk the horn. And, you know, I'm just, what is going on? Why is this person driving? And finally, they turn off. And I look over. I raise my hands in the air. Waving back at me was John Glenn and Annie Glenn, a man who had left the earth twice, a test pilot who had conducted the fastest transcontinental, you know, supersonic flight in, in American history, and I'm honking at him for driving under the speed limit. I felt terrible, um, but he was a, a heck of a guy, and we have four guests today, uh, three of which knew John very well, and so we'll talk with them about his life and his career. The airport here in Columbus has is, is been renamed to John Glenn Columbus International Airport, and rightfully so, and we'll talk about that uh, with one of our guests who was there at that ceremony. But today, our beer for the episode is Land Grant's Concentrate Hazy IPA. Uh, LandGrant actually has a tap room at the Columbus, John Glenn Columbus International Airport. Uh, one of my favorite beers here in town, go to LandGrantBrewing.com with our friends uh, Walt and, and all them over there. Uh, this is a New England IPA, 7.5%. It's it's juicy, it tastes great, very low bitterness on these really popular New England uh IPAs that are out. Uh, Concentrate is, is their main one, and it's really good stuff. We're having one today uh, while we talk about it. So if you're ever at the airport, you can go support my friends that, from Land Grant Brewing there as well, or go to their awesome tap room and Beer Garden in Franklinton, just outside of downtown Columbus. Again, landgrantbrewing.com. Today we got four guests to talk about John Glenn. We knew if we were going to talk about John, we had to cover everything. Uh, we have Keith Eberly, who is a professor uh, of history and classics at Muskingum University in New Concord, John's hometown. Uh, and Keith actually ran; he was the executive director of the John Glenn Museum, one of our sites with the Ohio history connection. Uh, you can go there to learn more about John, and, and it's a great place. We we were there uh, to learn about Colonel Glenn. So Keith joins us. Our friend Bruce Carlson, one of the great historians. An awesome podcaster of the popular show My History Can beat, on, beat Up Your Politics Bruce is back I think this is his third time On the program So he's one of our first three time uh, guests And again his He'll talk about Glenn's run for the presidency In 1984 He recently did an awesome podcast About the 1984 Democratic primary And really there's a lot of similarities Between the 2020 primary um, and, and we'll point some of those out With Bruce Carlson Again, buying history can beat up your politics. Go look that podcast up. It's one of my favorites out there. We'll also talk with Trevor Brown, who's the dean at the John Glenn College for Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. We'll talk about the development of that school and John's retirement, how important it was to him and all the great work that they're doing here in Columbus. And lastly, we sit down with Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at The Ohio State University. Uh, Herb knew John. He was the director, the original director um, for the John Glenn College, got it off its feet. Uh, You see him all the time on TV. He's a political commentator uh, here locally and and also an author. So Herb knew John well. And we'll talk about uh, John's career with Herb Asher. But that's enough of a preamble. John was not a man to mince words. And so we'll get started right away. It's episode two John Glenn vs. the World.
1: Three, two, one, booster ignition and liftoff of Discovery and One American Legend.
2: Godspeed, John John Glenn. Glenn. I do zero G and I feel fine. I flew 149 missions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my checkbook, it was my life that was on the line.
0: John Herschel Glenn Jr. was born in the summer of 1921 in New Concord, Ohio. His father, fresh off serving in the American Expeditionary Force in World War I on the Western Front, New Concord was about 70 miles east of Columbus in between Zanesville and Cambridge in eastern Ohio. John was a paperboy for the Columbus Dispatch. He, uh, He washed cars. He played football for New Concord and went on to play at Muskingum University. Uh, he was a member of the Ohio Rangers, like a Boy Scout group. Um, an all-American kid, and he described growing up in New Concord as an idyllic experience. We talked to Keith Eberly, our guest, the former executive director of the John Danny Glenn, John Glenn Museum. You can go to johnglennhome.org and visit that museum in New Concord. But we asked Keith about that idyllic childhood in New Concord, Ohio.
3: New Concord was such a important, informative, uh, you know, place for uh, for John. It, it really drives, you know, kind of the rest of his life in a lot of ways. And but uh, yeah, so uh, you know, in in a lot of ways, New Concord um, was, and maybe still is, a, a quintessential American small town. You know, everybody knows everyone else. Neighbors looked after neighbors. Uh, people are willing to lend a hand. Uh, you know, ideas like God, country, family definitely weren't cliches in the in the New Concord um, that John grew up in. So, yeah, his his childhood was was filled in the 20s and 30s with camping trips, swimming holes, bike rides, football games, patriotic parades, music concerts, and you know stuff. You know, and all kinds of, of things like that. John even described uh, New Concord as something straight out of a Norman uh, Rockwell uh, painting. John's famous for saying, uh, if you get your start in New Concord, you can go anywhere. Uh, and you know, his life certainly illustrated the truth of that.
0: And as we said before, John really embodied the American century. Well, part of that American century was the Great Depression in the late 20s and the 1930s. And John's family felt that. It hit small towns like New Concord hard. Um, But we talk with Keith about the effect of the New Deal and the Great Depression on John's political views, as he would be a Democrat his entire life. And he attributes some of that to the program started by FDR that helped his family.
3: You would definitely look at the Depression and the New Deal as a kind of formative influence on his you know, future as a, as a Democrat. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, you know, the Glens, um, like a lot of other American families, uh, you know, I always, I always talk to my, my students about, um, you know, Americans really finding their faith in the American dream, you know, really shaken by the great, um, depression, you know, his dad, um, prior to the depression had run two successful businesses, a plumbing business and a small car dealership. And while these were prosperous in the 20s, you can probably guess that a new car and a new water softener weren't high on the priority list for most people living um, through the, the Depression. So um, even though the, the glens didn't suffer as much as some, you know, life uh, definitely uh, got, um, got hard um, for the glens. And, and this kind of culminated um, one night in 1932, um, John uh, kind of overhears his parents at the kitchen table uh, basically saying they may not be able to, to continue making the mortgage payments um, and the bank may um, have to uh, foreclose on uh, the House. And, you know, John was 11 at the time. But uh, as you probably know, you know, 1932 was also um, the year that FDR um, was elected uh, president. And, and immediately, one of uh, his first New Deal initiatives was something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Um, and then later, uh, you know, a few months later, or maybe it was even the next year, um, the federal housing initiative uh, was formed. And both of these New Deal agencies were designed um, to curtail the foreclosure um, process and help American families, you know, make their, their mortgage payments, you know, during some of these um, tough, uh, tough years um of the of the depression and and you know and john um you know basically you know kind of said it it was this you know experience and um and this kind of lesson that he learned um that he carried with him for the rest of his life and he and he kind of i always i've always appreciated his what i think is a very um simple but also appropriate kind of definition of liberalism you know he basically said he uh, you know i learned that Um, government can play a role in changing people's lives for the better. You know, that's um, kind of John's uh, simple uh, sort of democratic liberalism. You know, and later on, certainly JFK and Robert Kennedy have a a big role in in his future in democratic politics. But um, it was that experience during the the Great Depression that really gave him the the personal feeling um, behind uh, his kind of political path.
0: John would go on to attend the local university, Muskingum, and he would have a love of flying. He would take flying lessons, get his pilot's license. We talked with Keith about John Glenn learning to fly.
3: Great stories there. The actual first time John ever flew in an airplane, uh, he was eight years old, and his father uh, was kind of an adventurous guy, too, and he just kind of— Asked John if he'd like to go for for an airplane ride, and John immediately said yes, and he uh, he immediately loved um, you know everything about uh, flying. But then uh, while he was in, in school at at Muskingum, uh, he was able to take some uh, flying lessons uh, in Cambridge, Ohio, and that's really what set the table um, or really made him um, eligible to to enlist in uh, the Army Air Corps. The, the funny thing about the Army Air Corps. So, so John did enlist in the Army Air Corps um, shortly after, um, or I should say that he tried to enlist in the Army Air Corps shortly after um, Pearl Harbor. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, the Army Air Corps never called him back. Uh, and so he waited a, a few weeks after still not hearing anything, uh, he went to... Uh, the naval um, recruiter in uh, Zanesville, um, Ohio, and instead enlisted as a naval aviation uh, cadet. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't know at first if, if maybe he was AWOL of the, uh, the Army Air Corps, but yeah, nothing ever came of it. I mean, presumably they just lost the paperwork somehow. But anyway, so John um, ultimately uh, enlisted in the, in the naval aviation corps.
0: Keith, who was the executive director of the John and Annie Glenn home, uh, you can't really tell the story of John Glenn without telling the story of Annie Castor. There's not a moment in John's life that he didn't know Annie. Uh, we also will talk with Trevor Brown, who knew Annie with his work as the executive director of the John Glenn College at The Ohio State University. But Annie was an incredible person. We talked with Keith and we talk with Trevor about Annie Castor and John's 73-year marriage to the woman of his dreams.
3: John and Annie's love story, it's one of those stories that if someone wrote it in a book, you know, you'd say it's ridiculous. You know, that real life doesn't work that way. Uh, but believe it or not, for, for John and Annie, it, it really did. Um, so, yeah, John uh, met Annie in the playpen when he was only a few months old. Um, his parents and Annie, Annie's parents were supper club friends and, you know, they got together and John and Annie were put in the same playpen together, you know, not more than a, a few, um, a few months um, old. So, yeah, you really, it really isn't exaggerating to say that John and Annie were together um, from the, from the very beginning. You know, they were, they were playmates as young kids. And then by the time they reached middle school and high school, they were boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, that, uh, that certainly continued um, while they were in college um, at Muskingham. Um, you know, fairly early on in college, they, they intended uh, to get married um, after uh, they graduated. But Pearl Harbor and World War II um, certainly changed that um, a little bit. But ultimately, uh, they were married, I believe it was April 3rd, 1943. And so they were um, they were married for a little over 73 years.
4: Well, they were seven decades of, or more of marriage. Uh, they were two halves of the same orange. They were just inseparable. Um, if you ever wanted to see two people in love with each other throughout all of their life, they would be the models of that. They just sort of never lost the romance. She was 75 percent of the time when you saw him, you saw her. Uh, she was she was often about. But we like to take pride in in her as well, here in the Glenn College, because she was as much a hero as he was, albeit in a different way, a kind of quiet hero. Uh, Many people know, but many people don't know, that she had a profound stutter growing up. Um, And growing up in the cocoon of New Concord, uh, she was comforted and nurtured by her family and friends and the community members. But when they left the, the safe confines of New Concord, it was a real shock for her, um, especially when the senator became much more of a public figure and she was in the public eye. Uh, she would tell stories in her later years um, about his uh, being, you know, thrust into these crowds and meeting people and treating her like a pariah almost. She'd be meeting with the wives of other senators and start to talk and stumble over her words, and they would just walk away from her, leaving her feeling um, very bad. Uh, one very positive thing about Senator Glenn in light of his relationship with her, I did not know them when she struggled with her her uh, speech impediment, but the story always was that he never finished her sentences, he never um, interrupted and said, well, what Annie meant to say, just let her use her voice as best she could to tell her story. Um, and then eventually she, she conquered that speech impediment um, and she was able to go to a speech therapy program that allowed her to, to give voice to her ideas and thoughts. And if you heard her speak now, you wouldn't have any idea that she, she had a stutter. Uh, and then ultimately the American Speech and Hearing Association named an award after her, the Annie, that commemorates uh, and acknowledges those who have um, championed those who have difficulty expressing their thoughts. And so some major award winners are people like James Earl Jones was the first award Mm. winner. And you think of Darth Vader and how powerful his voice was. According to Senator Glenn, if you were sitting next to him at a dinner table, he couldn't get a sentence out. But if they turned a camera on him, he could speak in um, complete sentences. So I have a great picture somewhere here in the building, used to be in my office, of Annie standing in front of her home um, right as the Senator was in the space program. And she couldn't remember, she can't remember if it was when he'd just come back or when he was launching. But she's there with her children, David and Lynn, beside her. And there's a phalanx of reporters and cameras and lights on her. Um, And I could only imagine the fear she had at that moment, both for her husband up in space um, but also knowing that she had, to, uh, she had to give voice to the family there, and that was when she was struggling with a speech impediment, and yet she bravely uh, stood there in the pocket, so to speak, and, and, and shared what she and the family were thinking. Um, it's a different kind of bravery, but it's one we, we often point to here. Uh, it gives a lot of power to students here to see, oh, there's different ways to be engaged in, the, in public life.
0: On Sunday, December 7th, 1941, John, then a college student, is driving to Annie's recital at the Brown Chapel at Miskeem University. And he hears on the radio while he's driving about Pearl Harbor. John still goes to the recital. He sits in the church, and he sits there listening to Annie, uh, knowing that everything in his life has changed. We talk with Keith about John's service in World War II. Yeah, so
3: yeah, John uh, John was in, in the South Pacific um, during World War II, uh, kind of, as I said, he, he enlisted um, shortly after uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. His um, squadron was deployed uh, to the Marshall Islands, and that's where um, he uh, conducted the majority of his uh, his combat missions. He ultimately, ultimately uh, flew about 59 combat missions uh, during uh, World War II.
0: John's an excellent fighter pilot. He wins six Distinguished Flying Crosses during his service. He transferred to the Marines before... Uh, during World War II, where he'd served for 23 years. And in 1950, the United States goes to war with North Korea. He's flying the F-86 Sabre. It's like the first American, really good American jet. Technology has, has pushed us to these supersonic jets. He's fighting against these Russian MiGs over the skies of, of North and South Korea. But he also flew with the famous baseball player, the splendid splinter, Ted Williams. Ted Williams was his co-pilot, his wingman. Um, We talked with Keith about his service in Korea and his service with Ted Williams.
3: Yeah, so John and Ted Williams definitely um, flew together during the Korean War. Ted Williams flew about half of his half of his missions as uh, John's uh, wingman. You know, I, I think one of the the more interesting things about um, about that particular story is, you know, uh, of course, John knew about Ted Williams, the baseball player, um, but he was also very impressed with uh, with Ted Williams, the, the pilot, you know, and it, and it wasn't just because of his you know, willingness to kind of sacrifice so much personally for his country, um, but also because Williams was a very technically skilled and, uh, and competent pilot. You know, John was more than happy to have uh, Williams as, as his uh, as his wingman. Um, Glenn flew another 27, uh, missions, um, in a. it was the F 86 saber, um, which, uh, was kind of famous for being the American counterpart to the infamous Soviet MIG fighter jet. Right. Um, and so it was while Glenn was, um, kind of flying the F 86 for the air force, um, that was in Korea. That was when he, um, he had his kind of first taste of you know one-on-one um air combat and that was the uh the uh, the time when uh, he, he shot down three migs um in combat in korea
2: but the biggest news to come out of russia was the story of the year perhaps of our generation not one but two artificial moons circle the earth Their radio beep signaling not merely a red scientific triumph, but the launching of mankind into a new era, the dawn of the age of space. Sputnik and Mutnik, they were called, or in the second rode a dog, Laika, the first earthly life to travel in outer space to prove that life can survive in the vast reaches of the universe.
0: On October 4th, 1957, the world changed forever. The Soviets launched Sputnik a satellite into, into Earth's orbit, it caused a panic across the country as the United States had lost the first part of the space race. We talk with our guest Bruce Carlson, the host of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, about what Sputnik did to the American psyche at the height of the Cold War.
5: I think Americans were extremely concerned about Sputnik, and you have to put yourself there. All right. Nowadays, we kind of laugh at I believe there's a Sputnik or at least a model of Sputnik down in D.C. at the Air and Space Museum. I saw it. And it's this little tiny ball with some needles protruding from it. It's laughable. Right. I mean, what could it possibly do? And we know a little bit more now about technology. It's it's part of our daily lives. And now it just had some radio transmitters. You know, what could it what could it possibly do? But back in the 50s, the fact that the Soviet unions were the first. To put this object into space, and that we had not yet been able to achieve that with all America's prowess. You know, we had won World War II. Of course, the Soviet Union, not to be American centric, the Soviet Union also thought that they won World War II in a big way. We thought that we Americans thought that, and that you know, how could this they get in there first? But also, you have to think about there's a fear of what's going to come next. Okay. Uh, Sputnik's up there, and it's it's just a, a satellite. But what's you know what's the next technology? Yeah. Is it going to be something yeah. that can launch a missile or hurt Americans? Can they watch us? Can they listen to our conversations? You know, we didn't know the pace of the technology improvement and how long it would take back then if people knew they might not have been so concerned, but they certainly were. And it changed America in a big way.
0: Also in 1957, the same year, as Sputnik, John Glenn really became a celebrity. For the first time, he becomes famous. John had the idea to make the first transcontinental supersonic flight. It goes from New York to California uh, in a little over three hours, breaking a record. And when NASA founded in 1958, um, and they announced the Mercury 7, the first seven astronauts, in April of 1959, John Glenn is one of those men. These guys are instant celebrities and heroes. And John really stands out even at the first press conference I watched. Uh, he's just a Boy Scout, and he, he really gets it, and he connects with the American public. We talked to Keith Eberle, you know, about the training for the legendary Mercury missions, those first American astronauts. We didn't really know what we were doing. We couldn't get rockets off the ground, incredibly dangerous work. And just how difficult and challenging that training process was.
3: Yeah, it was. It was a. It was kind of a wicked, <laughs> a wicked, uh, I guess, selection process, and then, um, and then, you know, ultimately training uh, process. But yeah, they, you know, they selected uh, the Mercury astronauts. You know, not surprisingly, because they were, you know, the best of the best, and they had to pass a barrage of physical and psychological tests. I think the the one the one that you know that I could never forget um, was uh, something that was nicknamed the steel eel, um, and that involved uh, uh, the scoping of the lower intestine, and uh, I, I'll just sort of let your imagination run wild with uh, with that one. Yeah, it was it was not um, pleasant um, to say the least. I think it was about as bad as it sounds. But the training and the testing, you know, really didn't um, stop. Uh, there. And, you know, and I always thought you got know, kind of in a lot of ways, this, the training process for the, for the Mercury flights was a little bit like throwing spaghetti um, at the wall and seeing what stuck, you know, like, or maybe more accurately, just trying to guess what might be important. Um, because, you know, really, nobody, you know, scientists, engineers, pilots, you know, politicians, nobody really knew um, exactly um, what would happen. And, and so to this end, you know, the Mercury astronauts, they went through desert survival training, they learned to scuba dive, um, they endured um, sensory deprivation chambers, they took personality tests, um, they had something called centrifuge training. Um, it was this kind of giant, you know, arm that they got strapped into, and it would just kind of shake, I mean, it did more than shake them. But like, <laughs> for for those of us who don't, you know, uh, you know, don't know the the sort of intricate details. It's basically shaking them, you know, every which way you know, possible upside down, you know, right, left, um, leaving them hanging. You know, it's just kind of a, uh, a tool just to see what's going to happen to the body when they're, uh, you know, in that um, spacecraft. And, and then that's on top of all the academic work. You know, it wasn't just physical stuff that, you know, they studied engineering, chemistry, biology, um, astronomy.
2: The colonel's date with destiny comes 10 months after the Russians claimed an orbital flight by Yuri Gagarin, and less than a year after Alan Shepard blazed a suborbital trail for the U.S. This is the climax of three years of training. This is the moment when the eyes of the world turn to Cape Canaveral. The Russian orbits were in a thick fog of secrecy. The United States stands or falls in the white-hot glare of worldwide publicity.
3: So it's pretty simple, I guess, mission, you would say, and there were, you know, it's threefold. Um, they wanted to, uh, place a piloted spacecraft into orbit around the earth. Uh, they wanted to, um, second, they wanted to observe, uh, kind of human performance in those conditions. Uh, and then finally, (laughs) and probably most uh, important to the astronauts themselves, they wanted to recover the human and the spacecraft safely. Uh, and so that, you know, that was it.
0: the U.S. continued to lag behind in the space race to the Soviets. The Mercury program sends up two astronauts. Their suborbital missions, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. But the third man to go into space, and to go into real space, is John Glenn. Glenn's third, but he really becomes the first astronaut. This rocket lifts him on February 20th, 1962, it's called the Friendship 7, actually enters the Earth's orbit. And John Glenn enters the public consciousness as a hero. We listen to the, the famous launch call and those famous words that were spoken by Mission Control Godspeed, John Glenn. Give
6: Godspeed, John Glenn. 10, 9, 8, 7, six, nine.
2: Three, two, one, zero. Roger. Roger, the operating're underway
0: John takes off like we said February 20 1962 and it's an incredibly dangerous mission. These guys had never ridden a rocket like this he, he carried a note in case he splashed down and was not retrieved in the South Pacific um, these guys didn't know if this mission would work. the note said, I'm a stranger, I come in peace. Take me to your leader and there will be a massive reward for you in eternity. It's translated into several South Pacific languages just in case he gets, you know, lands and is captured or whatever. But really so far, early in the mission, everything is going great.
3: I do zero G and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around.
2: Oh, that view is tremendous. Roger, turnaround has started.
6: Capital capsule turning around, and I could see the booster during turnaround, around just a couple of hundred yards behind me. It was beautiful. Uh, Roger, 7, you have a go, at least 7 orbits. Roger,
2: understand, go for at
0: least 7 orbits. As John's, you know, transmitted back to the American public, you know, his famous 0G and I feel fine. On the ground, there is a problem. There's a warning light that the heat shield was loose and suddenly now they're telling John it was supposed to be 7 orbits like we heard suddenly at the end of the third orbit they're telling John that he needs to to reenter and he needs to land the autopilot went out you know on the on the first, after the first orbit John's flying it manually he feels like something's wrong if this heat shield's loose when he reenters the atmosphere uh, the capsule will burn up John will be killed he starts to figure out what was going on we talked to Keith uh, just about this heat shield issue and how close John actually was to not making it?
3: He figured out what was going on. He knew that, that the reason they kept asking if the landing bag was still attached um, to the heat shield was because they must be worried that um, the heat shield might be uh, slipping or, or might possibly slip off during um, reentry. The thing of it was, though, you know, NASA, um, or at least Mission Control, never told him that directly. Um, they, you know, there was a pretty pretty hot debate um, among the, the mission control um, crew about uh, and the, the other Mercury 7 astronauts who were in the room with them about whether or not um, John should be told explicitly that there was this potential um, problem. Um, but ultimately, they, they decided not to tell John that there was um, this potential um, problem. Uh, and that really bugged, Um, John, in fact, the, um, he firmly believes that you have to tell, um, the guy in the, in the capsule, um, if there's a problem, because if for some reason, uh, you know, communication would be lost between the capsule and mission control, you know, there, the guy, you know, in theory would have no idea, um, if, uh, you know, or w- would have no idea what the problem was and couldn't really, you know, do any problem solving or, or you know, make any um, adjustments to uh, to deal with the problem. And so it actually became policy um, after the Friendship 7 flight, official NASA policy that, um, you know, if there was a problem, uh, Mission Control would inform uh, the astronaut, you know, of the of the problem and the details, and they would work on it together.
0: But the heat shield does hold. John crashes into the. Pacific Ocean. He's retrieved. Uh, It got really hot in that capsule. I know that. Uh, You can watch video of of John re-entering. He's talking about the flames all around uh, and and how warm it's getting, but he makes it, and he becomes a hero. We talk with with Keith just about why was John, he's the third person in space, but suddenly he is a giant hero, and why was it so important to the Americans as we pulled even in the space race?
3: Alan Shepard, you know, he was the first um, American fly, but his flight was suborbital, so it was it was still kind of second, you know, second best to what the Soviets um, had already done. Gus Grissom made the second um, flight in the Mercury project, but he was still um, suborbital. Um, so it was really, you know, John Glenn's um, Friendship Seven Mercury flight. You know, that was the first time. Um, when, you know, Americans could can, can sort of say, you know, now we've, you know, we've, we're on par with um, the Soviet Union.
0: There's a huge parade, D.C., New York, a massive ticker tape parade. As he rides next to um, Vice President Lyndon Johnson in New Concord. We talked to Keith about that. 75,000 people descend on New Concord for that, for that parade. You know, a town of, what, 2,000, 3,000 folks. And like you said, there's a parade through Washington, D.C. At the end of that parade, John gives a speech to the Joint Session of Congress. He's honored by the Congress there, and he gives a speech. We play you a part of his speech in 1962.
6: Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, and I'm certainly glad to see that pride in our country and its accomplishments are not a thing of the past. (laughs) I know I still get a real hard to define feeling down inside when the flag goes by, and I know all of you do too. (laughs) The launch itself was conducted openly and with the news media representatives from around the world in attendance. This is certainly in sharp contrast with similar programs conducted elsewhere in the world and elevates the peaceful intent of our program. Today, I know that I seem to be standing alone on this great platform just as I seem to be alone in the cockpit of the Friendship 7 spacecraft, but I'm not. We are all proud to have been privileged to be part of this effort, to represent our country as we have. As our knowledge of this universe in which we live increases, may God grant us the wisdom and guidance to use it wisely. Thank you.
0: well-received and famous speech from Capitol Hill, John shows an acumen for politics. He connects with people. and He becomes close with JFK and his brother, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, RFK. And they become friends. Uh, and, and, you know, the Kennedys see it. But JFK decides to, to ground John Glenn. Never to fly again. He's too important. You know, we talk with our guest, Trevor Brown, the dean of of the John Glenn College at at The Ohio State University. Why was he grounded? Why did JFK ground him? We also hear from Kennedy talking about Colonel Glenn.
4: And the senator was kind of bashful about this. The answer is he was a public hero, um, and he was the face of not just the space program, but America's competition with Russia uh, and the risk that we could lose him given that there had been deaths in the space program, was just too much to bear for the Kennedy administration. So quietly, they shelved him. They, they, um, he was not aware of that at the time, but he came to know that. And the reason I say he was too bashful, he never would describe himself as a public hero, um, but it's true that he's an American hero times 10 and so the Kennedy administration just didn't, didn't want to lose, didn't want to put him at risk, yeah. didn't want to lose the, the person who had been come to known, be known as the great success of the American space program.
2: It requires physical and moral stamina to equal the stresses of these times and a willingness to meet the dangers and the challenges of the future. John Glenn throughout his life has eloquently portrayed these great qualities and is an inspiration to all Americans. In paying tribute to John Glenn, also pays tribute to the best in American life.
0: As see here JFK talking and honoring John Glenn. They become close. Glenn had made a few trips to the White House to discuss the mission uh, and a trip you know, after the successful flight of Friendship 7 in, in the three orbits. But John's on the inside of Camelot. He's vacationing in Hyannis Port with Jackie, Jack, and Bobby, and his wife, Ethel Kennedy. He's he's water skiing with with Kennedy driving the boat. Um, Him and Annie are going up there. And RFK encourages John to run for the Senate. This is even after the tragic assassination of JFK in 1963. You can go back and listen to our Ohio vs. Conspiracy episode. We talk about the JFK assassination last season, but John stays close with the Kennedys and he can see the writing on the wall with NASA that he's not going to be picked to make any other flights. It appears, uh, and RFK tells him, Hey, you should run for Senate. And in 1964, he does, he runs for, he begins a candidacy for the Senate, but he falls at a hotel, he's fixing a, a mirror in a hotel bathroom, hits his head in the tub. Uh, he's got a concussion and vertigo. He's in the hospital. And after about a month or two, he has to end his candidacy. Doctors told him, you know, if, didn't know if he'd be able to recover or at least take a year. But he does recover and he stays close with RFK and he works with Robert Kennedy on his 1968 presidential campaign. Fortunately, we all know how that would end in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles.
2: Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? No! Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy
6: has been shot and possibly shot in the head.
2: I am right here. Raper Johnson has a hold of a
6: man who apparently has fired the
2: shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. Take
1: a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb.
0: John Glenn was there when Bobby Kennedy was killed and shot in the head. And he faces one of his most difficult duties. The Kennedys choose Glenn to tell his several children, you know, uh, Bobby and Ethel, I think, had 10 kids, and Ethel had an 11th on the way when Senator Kennedy was assassinated. John Glenn is chosen to ride back to Virginia by plane with the kids who were there, and he breaks the news to the rest of the children when he, when they land in Virginia. You know, why John Glenn, you'd have to ask the Kennedys that, but it's pretty incredible. Something that we learned, Ethel Kennedy was at John's funeral. John spent a number of years with the Kennedys, and did stay close with them but the Kennedys are dead John's out of politics he's not. He's out of NASA and he actually enters the business world I love it he, he, uh, he spends a number of years as the president of Royal Crown Cola RC Cola um, and I love RC I grew up with it you don't see it as much anymore um, but it's really good stuff certainly better than Pepsi maybe not better than Coke but really one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite drinks and Glenn wants to get back in politics even after that, Uh, even after his success in the business world. He narrowly loses the 1970 primary, 51-49. to But he would run in 1974 against Howard Metzenbaum, a millionaire businessman from Cincinnati, fellow Democrat. Metzenbaum's in the lead, and he says that John Glenn had never met a payroll. He's playing up his own business, you know, triumphs and he's saying that john had never held a job these two are neck and neck and they, they meet at the cleveland city club for a debate and we'll turn it over to bruce carlson from my history can beat up your politics we'll talk about the speech that would launch john glenn into the united states senate for a quarter of a century it's called the gold star mother speech in
5: 1974 Glenn wins the primary against Howard Metzenbaum. And one of the things is Metzenbaum's very wealthy, and he says, he makes a comment, that John Glenn never had a job in his life. And I know that for you and I, you know, that's just crazy that you would say that against an American hero. But you have to remember, and this really persisted throughout John Glenn's career, there was a little bit of snickering about this, like this astronaut getting involved in in politics. So while there was popular support, for him among the political elite There was this little bit of snickering About like, what's he doing in politics And you know while Reagan had entered And a few celebrities had entered politics You know you didn't have as much of it as you have Obviously today um, So 74 primary Happens and Medicine bomb Says you know John Glenn's never had a job In his life And John Glenn doesn't respond Waits for the debate And just unleashes A bomb on Bomb.
2: I would spent 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. I was through two wars. I flew 149 missions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my checkbook, it was my life that was on the line. You <laughs> know, as I went the other day out to a veteran's hospital, look those men out there with their mangled bodies in the eye and tell them they didn't hold a job. You go with me to any gold star mother, and you look her in the eye, and you tell her that her son did not hold a job. You stand in Arlington National Cemetery, where I have more friends than I like to remember, and you think about this nation, and you tell me that those people didn't have a job. I tell you, Howard Metzenbaum, you should be on your knees every day of your life, thanking God that there were some men, some men, who held a job. And they required a dedication to purpose and a love of country and a dedication to duty that was more important than life itself. And their self-sacrifice is what has made this nation possible. I've held a job, Howard.
0: John Glenn, the junior senator from Ohio, Uh, He's been a household name now for 15, 20 years in America. And in 1976, he's being mentioned as a possible vice presidential candidate to the Democratic nominee and future president, Jimmy Carter. He goes down to meet with with Carter in Georgia, in Plains, uh, and he goes to the convention at Madison Square Garden. He's a keynote speaker. We talked to Bruce Carlson uh, about this speech and, and how it bombed. Uh, Reminds me of the nineteen eighty eight Democratic Convention. A young up and coming governor from Arkansas is selected to introduce the nominee, Michael Dukakis. It's a man named William Jefferson Clinton. Clinton's speech was thirty three minutes long. They're all sitting there waiting to hear from their nominee. They're going to win the back the presidency after eight years of Reagan. And this young Arkansas governor just won't stop talking. The crowd is booing. They want to hear the nominee. The only cheer he gets is at the end when Clinton says, in conclusion, and people start going nuts. And finally they bring out Dukakis. Um, Clinton's career was almost killed by that speech. A dud of a convention speech. He, but he goes on The Tonight Show and makes fun of himself and plays the saxophone. And just like always, uh, you know, Bill Clinton gets out of it. Uh, but Glenn was not so lucky in 1976 at Madison Square Garden.
5: You know, he's definitely in contention, but at the convention, you have to have Barbara Jordan who's speaking and right. electrifies the convention. It's so much that Robert Strauss is the chair and he keeps banging a gavel to get them to stop. And so Glenn, he makes a speech, which is very general and it's about the responsibility of government to the people. He doesn't talk about the Republicans. He doesn't talk about the Democrats. He doesn't talk about Jimmy Carter. He makes the speech about government and when it's over, There isn't really even applause. One of the things uh, David Barry says is that, you know, John Glenn couldn't electrify a a fish tank if he threw a toaster in it.
0: John Glenn would spend 24 years in the United States Senate. And we introduced to the program our our guest, Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus in Political Science at at Ohio State, Uh, a man who knew John, helped him develop this great college that was his legacy in his retirement. Uh, we sat down with herb actually at the John Glenn School in, in um, on the Ohio State campus, and he we had a great time talking with herb. Uh, but we talked with him about his Senate career and what interests John Glenn?
7: I think if you had a choice of saying, well, Senator Glenn or Colonel Glenn, Colonel might be more attractive. I think the Senate, in some ways was so frustrating in terms of you know the posturing, the uh, getting things done and all of that, but he served for four terms and uh, 24 years and right yeah yeah. yeah yeah so it was uh and i think the the areas he took the greatest pride in were certainly uh the focus on nuclear non-proliferation that would certainly be one trying to heighten concerns about weapons of mass destruction more broadly and then a whole variety of things that really deal with i'll say the nuts and bolts of nuts and bolts of governing how do we do this better? How do we do it right? How do we make sure that we're not wasting taxpayers' money? That sort of thing, which is never something that gets a lot of publicity or a lot of coverage or whatever. But the, So he really was interested in the governing, the nuts and bolts side of things.
0: John Glenn rises up the food chain on Capitol Hill, and in 1984, he decides to put a serious run together for the Democratic nomination for president. We're going to listen to some... Commercials that his his campaign ran, but this was a serious campaign. We talked with Bruce Carlson. There was a movie called The Right Stuff, based on a book by Tom Wolfe that came out in nineteen eighty three, kind of launched his you know his presidency. Unfortunately, like Bruce says and Glenn says, the movie wasn't very good. Um, the famous book telling the you know the story of the astronauts, but Glenn was a obviously a very recognizable name. He had been in the Senate for ten years. He had the political experience. To make a run
6: when was the last time a leader asked the american people for commitment and sacrifice not just promising whatever they want to hear when was the last time a leader set lofty goals and challenged us to reach for them he calls for a rededication to excellence and opportunity for leadership that is honest courageous common sense and i'm still american red white and blue enough to believe that we can out invent out research out educate out produce out-market anybody in this world. That's That's the the
0: leadership we need. That's John Glenn. John enters this 1984 Democratic primary, and there's a great episode. Our guest, Bruce Carlson, that we'll hear from uh, his podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, did a breakdown of the 1984 Democratic primary and the similarities between that and our current crowded, gosh, what was it, 24, 25 candidates here in 2020. The main favorite is not Glenn. He's probably the number two favorite going in. Um, But the lead favorite is Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter's vice president, kind of the standard bearer, uh, you know, the old reliable Democrat in the race. We talk with Bruce about those similarities between 1984 and 2020. And we'll hear another commercial uh, from John Glenn's presidential campaign.
5: So, you know, Glenn enters a really crowded field that's very similar to 2020. There is a great number of candidates in the 1984 election. It doesn't seem like it in the service. We just hear about like Hart and Mondale and Glenn and maybe Jesse Jackson and a few others. You know, I counted, you know, somewhere near 11 to 12 candidates running for the Democratic nomination. It was pretty big.
0: And there were some
5: fairly large debates. Yeah, especially back then because. These people, including John Glenn, by the way, got into a serious amount of debt. It's not like today where you can run and raise money on the Internet. Small donors were not really much of a thing back then. John Glenn was paying off uh, debts for his campaign for some time.
6: My real question is, as a military person, mm-hmm. are you likely to get into more combat, into more wars, Tell me what, what we can expect from your uh, background yeah. and how you will handle those kinds now, of things. I'll tell you this, I think as a military person I am less likely, and let me tell you why. I have a military background, as I said, 23 years in the Marine Corps. I've been there, I've been shot at myself, my plane was hit on 12 different occasions. I know the terrors of war firsthand. I know what it's like to come back from a mission sit down and have to write a next of kin letter to people I knew in the States, friends. Your husband isn't coming home. Your father is not coming home. I know what that's like, and that sears your soul, I can tell you that. I don't want to see combat ever visited again on anybody if we can possibly prevent it. And nobody is going to negotiate any harder for peace than I will. John Glenn for president, leadership for the future.
5: Yeah, you have a frontrunner, Walter Mondale, who is a former vice president, And he's the vice president under Carter. And so he is the kind of titular head of the Democratic Party in some sense. But he's also a person that's not, you know, overly exciting to people, he has huge labor support, he has huge institutional support. Because he's vice president under Carter, he has the right to claim the mantle of that administration. That's very similar to what you're seeing play out with Joe Biden, where he can't say Obama's name enough. And that was, there was a similar dynamic happening there. Once people criticize, within a Democratic primary, when people like Hart uh, criticized the Carter administration, and you know, represented doing something new. You know, Mondale was able to claim that uh, mantle and and counter criticize them for attacking their own party's president. Yeah, well, you're seeing some of that play out.
0: John's campaign really was, like we said, he's the number two favorite in the race, but it gets off to just a rocky start. We talk with Bruce about why these Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary. Are really the spots that would kill his campaign. Uh, you know, these issues that we had before of John being bland and boring isn't so much the problem here. It's more of just the strategy and just the, he did not work well in the primary. I think John Glenn would have been an amazing national candidate for president, could have challenged Reagan in 84. We'll talk to Bruce about what went wrong in Iowa and New Hampshire in 1984, and we hear a bit of a debate as he's going off on the favorite Walter Mondale.
5: As you get to Iowa, and the one who is boosted is Gary Hart, because he has some support there. He's been campaigning there a long time. When everyone's attacking each other, Mondale and Glenn, people in Iowa just say, well, we've had it with these two. We want somebody with new ideas. We're picking Hart. And so Hart is the beneficiary of Glenn attacking Mondale. You get into New Hampshire, not too much later, Hart has some momentum. Glenn still thinks he's going to win supportive of those type of things. So he was trying to run as you would as a national candidate, like as the campaign you'd run against Reagan in some small halls in New Hampshire. You know, didn't work so well for
2: him. And then you go before other people and you promise them everything else. Is this going to be a Democratic Party that promises everything to everybody and runs up one hundred and seventy billion dollars a year? Let me finish one hundred and seventy billion dollars a year that will only help put more people out of jobs that's ridiculous if we're going to balance this budget it's going to come as we do the things that i've proposed where we cut the budget and where are we going to pay as you go system where we have a surtax where we have dual defer that indexing that's a way to it not going out promising everything to everybody and then not even bothering to go through the checkout counter i'm disgusted and tired of all the vague promises i wish that the former vice president would in fact get some figures down so they can be compared with what the rest of us are proposing.
5: Glenn's trying to run also a moderate campaign in a primary, which is very difficult to do. So he's trying to say if you vote for Mondale, he's going to end up with real expensive programs. Well, you're running in a Democratic primary. So, you know, then as as, as is now, it's the party that's supportive of those type of things. So he was trying to run as you would as a national candidate. Like You know, I think that if there were no Iowa New Hampshire, Glenn probably would have won that race.
0: Senator Glenn would only get less than 4% of the vote during the Iowa caucus. He would do better finishing third in New Hampshire, but he was predicted to finish much higher. And on March 16th, he suspends his campaign. We talked lastly with Bruce just about uh, Bruce, who knows, he did a 10-part series on his podcast about uh, President Reagan. But we talked to him about what a Glenn versus Reagan election would have looked like. It certainly would have been closer than, than the race that Walter Mondale ran. He was blown out. John Glenn really did scare men like Jim Baker in, in Reagan's you know re-election uh, campaign. They were scared of John Glenn.
5: First term, Reagan... Was in a very vulnerable position. Uh, nineteen eighty-two saw one of the biggest downturns in the economy since the Great Depression, and and what was really important about nineteen eighty-two in that recession is a lot of blue-collar people lost jobs that to quote the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, weren't coming back. Right, so it was a it was a really tough recession, and there were a lot. Of, you know, his his approval rating wasn't very high. Uh, so going into that election. You know, somebody like a Glenn seemed like a very strong candidate because he could take on Reagan, never look like a peaceneck on defense. That wasn't going to happen to him. They could they could pin that on Mondale. They could pin that on hard. He has a very strong military record and and being a national hero. You know, they're going to have to find something else. He could um, represent the moderate wing of the Democratic Party and uh, he could probably unite some people. You know, Reagan was still on the far right of the republican party um and the first term didn't change much in that respect what reagan did have is an advantage that probably made any candidate's job a little tough in 1984 is that the economy in 1983 grew a lot faster than it ever normally does so we had this big dip in 82 but in 83 you saw a 7 percent increase in gdp that's very unusual We're extremely unusual you get half of that and people are celebrating yeah, yeah that was that makes it tough to see where you know that election would have gone I certainly Glenn would have done better than Mondale I mean that's obvious to me now I guess obvious to anybody with hindsight I do you believe that it that some of the Reagan people were certainly afraid of Glenn probably a little afraid of of hard even they weren't afraid of Mondale I think they knew just how to beat him it was just like running against Carter again from their point of view
0: remains in the Senate from into the 80s into the 90s. He runs for re-election in 92 against Mike DeWine, our current Ohio governor. We talk with Herb Asher just about how really politics changed while Glenn was there. Uh, and they've really changed for the worse. And it's still the mudslinging that we see today.
7: He was so mad at Mike, uh, at Mike DeWine because I think they ran some anti-abortion you know commercials against him or whatever and uh, you know he he had a certain uh, you know I mean the way politics was going was just uh, and of course once he left office in 98 to just see how you know anything goes now in campaigns whatever was just uh, appalling to him Uh, he yeah he really in some ways he was from a different era and uh, and he'd feel very comfortable with uh, you know Republicans like Bob Dole and Gerald Ford and you know and uh, you know who brought a certain common appreciation of civility. You know, that's not to say he couldn't be partisan. He couldn't be. He, but you no, know, he and he and what surprised a lot of people is he really was very liberal. You know, he wasn't you know Bernie Sanders you know but. But the, he had a very liberal voting record on a lot of issues, social and economic and all that. So, uh, But he, he always had the sense that he never lost touch with his roots, never lost touch with New Concord.
0: John retires in 1998. He's, he leaves the Senate, and he decides he's going to start a school there and be associated with with the great state university. But he's got something else going on. We talked to Herb uh, about Annie Glenn, who he knew well, as um, and he, you know, Annie's pretty funny. But John decides, and he's working on this for years. He's going to try and get back into space
7: in his retirement. Uh, she, she was such a good person, and such a welcoming person, and such a savvy person. And every once in a while, she'd give John a little grief too. I mean, it was really, in a funny way. I mean, he he would tell the story of himself when he ran for president. Yeah, he said you know, I really wanted to run for president in the worst way. And he would try to say, yeah, and you did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but John was meeting with some students here, and, uh, you know, after he went back into space, and uh, and they they asked him, well, why did you want to go back into space? And, uh, and a lot of us knew, I mean, we we knew his ambition, all that, but he said, well, you know, all the astronauts have been younger. We need to see how space travel affects an older body. We need to do the measurements, da-da-da-da-da. And Annie is sitting there, and he's going on. And finally, Annie just chimes in and says, John, come on. Tell the real story. Tell them that you're a space junkie and you wanted to fly again. (laughs) And that was so true, it really was. No, she was very much a partner.
0: When someone who has risked their life countless times for our space program and for our country comes to you and asks, I'm willing to take the risk of space flight and serve my country again because I think we could do more to benefit the lives of older Americans.
5: Can I go? If that person proves that they have a deep blend of experience, expertise,
0: and excellent health, the answer is certainly yes. 1998 NASA. Whether they were convinced it was a good idea or not, it certainly was a publicity coup for them. And we talk with Trevor Brown about John Glenn's return to space, 77 years old. I remember there was a parade in Columbus when he came back. He spends nine days in space. I mean, talk about an American badass.
4: First off, it's important to say that, in light of your question earlier about was he grounded, why was he grounded, he, he wanted to get back up in space. I mean, I think he thrilled not to being the first, but being there. He just relished being up in the ether. um, And what an amazing experience for any human. And he was one of those special people who could handle it exceptionally well. Uh, And so he wanted to get back up there. Uh, And his angle was that he was a septuagenarian and that if we were gonna embark on space exploration and space travel, not just as a nation, but as humanity, we was gonna take all, all types, not just young people, um, but so he argued that we needed to understand what happened to the body in space at different phases of life. So the average astronaut going up was in their late twenties, early thirties, um, and so he, as the now to this day still the oldest human being to ever go into space, was to see how would the body react uh, when when you were up in space, um, the, your eyes, your ears, just all of your senses, uh, and so that was the that was the angle, and he he could make the case um, with great. Um, certainty and confidence. Hey, I've done this before. You know, you don't have to train me for years and years. Uh, I know how to do this. Uh, and so, I think it was an it was an easy sell. He was such a recognizable figure to so many different parts of the country, given his status uh, across so many different phases of his life. So, to have somebody of that that was that recognized go back up in space, it really did shine a spotlight on the on the space program and the shuttle in particular. And he was. He was very frustrated when the shuttle program was grounded. Yeah. He, um, he was a real advocate for having humans in space and, and having a, a vehicle that the government controlled and owned, the space shuttle and could and humans could pilot pilot. Um, instead of just sending people up on rockets to the International Space Station. He, he was very, very upset and let NASA know that um, and the administration when they when they mothballed the, the space shuttle program.
5: Uh, all systems are go. That's the report we're getting from the Launch Control Center here at the Kennedy Space Center. That's the president and the first lady getting up to see the launch. Let's just listen for the rest of the way. T-minus ten. nine,
1: eight... We have a go for engine start. Five, four, three, two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff of Discovery with a crew of six astronaut heroes and one American legend.
0: John returns to Earth, and he's retired. But much like you'd think with John Glenn, he's not just going to sit at home and twiddle his thumbs. He decides to make a legacy for himself, and begins the process with our guest Herb Asher and others of creating the John Glenn College. We ask Herb, you know, where did this idea come from,
7: and why, you know, why build this this institute to public policy? And the public policy side was really motivated by. Uh his frustration as a U.S. Senator when they would have all these witnesses come in and give expert testimony and they were all from the East Coast or the West Coast. And he would say, but we've got some fantastic universities in the middle of the country. We've got the Big Ten institutions. We've got other institutions. What are we, flyover country or whatever? So the public uh, service was really focused on uh, really getting people into careers in public service. The public policy was really somehow getting more faculty, you know, especially at Ohio State, but more engaged in the public policy debates that face the nation. Our guest, Trevor Brown, the dean of the, of
0: the John Glenn College of Public, of public Affairs, uh, sat down with us at the school. We sat actually in John's old, uh, still dedicated office. We saw all these incredible artifacts and uh, really cool place. I, if I, you know, could go back to school, that's the place that I would definitely want to go here in the state of Ohio. But we talked with him just about the Glenn School and how they got it off the ground and how this college could serve as John Glenn's lasting legacy. Uh,
4: when when he first came here, um, uh, he he gave his papers. We have Everything from the joystick from Friendship 7 is here in the building. Um, A little piece of the moon that Neil Armstrong gave him as part of the 40th anniversary of the orbit of Friendship 7. Uh, So we have all of his Senate papers. Uh, We have a bomber jacket that uh, Tom Cruise gave him that says Top Gun Glenn on it. (laughs) Um, So in giving his artifacts, he really was giving almost a museum like array of things the School of Public Policy and Management began conversations with the Glenn Institute about saying hey let's let's see what we can do together Uh, and we both came to live in this building Page Hall that we're sitting in right now uh, and so we like to say that we lived together for a couple of years before we got married, <laughs> test each other out. Living in sin. Uh, same, <laughs> living in sin. Um, and don't tell Senator Glenn's parents. They would not <laughs> have been happy about that. So that merger occurred in 2006. By 2010, we had created an undergraduate degree. So we had a Bachelor's of Arts in Public. Uh, management, leadership, and policy. And since that time, we've added a bachelor's of science in uh, public policy analysis. And all of these degrees are meant to prepare people for public service. So at the undergraduate level, it's more of a pre-service entering into your career. At the graduate professional level, it's more mid-career. And then the doctoral program is for research and analysis. Um, And so for him, it was it was thrilling to be able to say, "Wow, there there is I have the ability to to help someone figure out their life's course." Um, and
0: for generations,
4: for this, in my view, will be his great legacy.
0: Had so much fun talking with with Trevor and and Herb Asher at the Glenn School. Um, we talked with Herb, who helped you know develop this school in the late '90s, early 2000s with John Glenn. Uh, and one of the things we talked about was he traveled the country with the famous uh, astronaut and senator,
7: Colonel John Glenn. I got to travel around the country with John. And so, uh, to look at other places. So he we went to the LBJ school. and uh, Is that at Austin? Yeah, yeah, at UT. That's right, Austin. And, uh, <coughs> and we, uh, it was we met with some of the old Pauls who had been part of Lyndon Johnson's you know, and it was really fun, it was good. Then we went off to Stanford, the Haas Center I think it was, and, and that was actually a center renowned for its uh, public service activities involving students and, uh, and so John met with a class of about 70 students. Uh, I was with him in a very interesting session. And then John asks the question, well, how many of you are thinking about going into public service? One person raises her hand. And he says, I don't mean running for office. I mean being a policy analyst, a government lawyer, a scientist, anything. And maybe a total of four people. Had raised raise their hands. And this was considered to be one of the best programs. So I said, you know, afterwards we, we just compared notes. To this is the challenge we have. How do you get people to go into public life uh, and government? And we probably really need to have an undergraduate major at some point or whatever. And we we, you know, we both got that. And so, uh, but he knew it was important that you become a school and a college in terms of having the cachet. Within the university, and so, uh, so he worked on that, and, uh, and he he was just an incredibly impressive person. We joked that the his autograph will never be valuable because he signed everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it'd be funny to you know, to when you walk through airports with him, and uh, and he still had. Well, he had a long stride, and he had a quite a good pace. So I'm I'm scrambling to keep up, or whatever. But sometimes when I lag behind. I'd see people then who'd see him, and they're, that's John Glenn. And I think a lot of times we forgot here at Ohio State, we have a world celebrity here.
0: If you fly into Columbus, Ohio, or fly out of Columbus, Ohio today, you're flying out of John Glenn Columbus International Airport. Our guest Herb Asher was there when that change was, was made. John was still alive. When John gave a speech you know, commemorating this name change,
7: you know, the story of uh, the naming of uh, Port Columbus, you We know, got it done relatively quickly. The only uh, question was, is it John Glenn International Airport or is it Port... Is it John Glenn... My friend how it's said now, but John... Is Columbus still in it? Yes, Columbus is still in the name. That's important. The day of the ceremony at the airport to celebrate the name change, uh, John spoke, and... I don't know if he had notes, but I think what he said was not from notes. And it was absolutely beautiful. But after it was, he was done, he said, the and said, Oh, well, I was really bad today. And I said, No, I'm practically in tears because what he was explaining is that when he was a kid, his parents would oftentimes drive in to Columbus, park outside the fence, and he'd watch the planes. And it was such a beautiful story. And I really think he believed that he didn't really, you know, he super nailed it. I mean, it really just said, yes, this airport should, damn it, it should be named after him.
0: Both of our guests, Trevor Brown and Herb Asher, knew John Glenn as he got older. And they both happened to recount, without me asking, their final conversations with John Glenn in the, in the weeks before he died. They each spoke in it. Even at 95 years old, the senator still has some incredible insight and some incredible lessons for all of us.
4: Um, you have a little bit more perspective. Uh, the last conversation I had with him was about two or three weeks before his death. He was at home, not feeling well, but well enough to talk on the phone. Um, and he was listening. He'd lost his sight, and he was very sad about that. but. Um, he still loved to consume information. And so he was listening to a book on tape about the War of 1812. So there we were. He was lamenting the outcome of the 2016 election and saying, eh, I wish that uh, my candidate had won. I uh, said, But you know, I'm listening to this story about the War of 1812, and God, it was awful. We were at war, but we didn't know who we were at war with. And, you know, it was in the middle of a presidential election. It's and we had a lot we, of strife we, in we, Congress we, during that, too, yeah. We, we made it through that. Right, so we'll make it through this period. You know, I, I, and I, I take great comfort from that because I don't know that he knew he was gonna pass away within a month, but I think he knew this was coming to an end and you can see someone at that phase being bitter and sad. I think he was, even in spite of things not going the way he wanted them to and, and seeing some of the institutions and social norms that he felt that he was a part of begin to erode, he was still hopeful, he believed in the democratic experiment believed in small d democracy and believed in the American people that we'll, we'll get through this, this period.
7: I came by his office uh, to see Kathy Dancy, who was his assistant. I walk in and Kathy says, oh, uh, I'm on the phone with the senator. Uh, he's, uh, he's not doing very well today. Yeah. No. Uh, and then she says, Senator, Herb just came in. So she puts me on the phone and as soon as we start talking, he is energized. You you would never know. I mean, you die a couple of weeks later. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. His it was his body that failed and not his mind. And so we're talking. We're talking for a good half hour, and finally Kathy says, "Guys, this is my phone. I need to." But what we talked about, and he was very disappointed, obviously, in Hillary's defeat. I had no use for Trump, but we started talking about this. The relevant point. Said the only, he said, Herb, the only thing I feel at all good about are some of the names that are being mentioned, some of the generals. And he particularly mentioned Jim Mattis. And said, you know, Jim Mattis is just first rate, if he, in fact... And there were some, a couple of the other generals. I don't know, I don't know if he mentioned Kelly specifically, McMaster, but, but he said generals, plural. He said, you know, you know, Jim will go in there. president tells him to do something stupid, he'll explain to the president why he shouldn't be doing it. President insists he'll try again. President keeps on insisting. Uh, Mattis will try to enlist other people to help the president come to an understanding. And if really, and if ultimately, you know, you can't, and it's really bad, Mattis will leave, and he'll leave with dignity, you know. And that's exactly what happened. John Glenn dies on December 8,
0: 2016, here in Columbus, Ohio. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And as a senator and an astronaut, all the news stations, CNN, here locally, they ran the hours-long tribute. Vice President Joe Biden spoke. He had served in the Senate with Glenn. He gave gave a touching tribute. I remember watching that. You can go watch it on, on YouTube. Our guests were there. Trevor Brown will close our show talking about why, you know, why was John Glenn so extraordinary? And really this idea that he was so ordinary that he was extraordinary.
4: He first off would never differentiate himself to others, right? right? I mean, it would never say what made me different or special. He would never say that. I mean, I think that's an absolutely fair question you're yeah. asking, but but the fact that- I wouldn't I, ask him that. No, but, but <laughs> if you did, he would answer it by saying, I wasn't any different than anybody else, right? And that's what made him so special, right? For somebody of such amazing accomplishments, and if you think of those three primary chapters of his life, his military service, the space program, and his elected service, any one of those, we'd be building statues for him. Um, and yet, as you pointed out, he just kept going, right? It was like, okay, well, I'm gonna do this whole new thing. Um, and, and yet, throughout that, he was the most humble person I, I ever met. I mean, for a guy who lived up in space, he definitely had his feet out in the ground. I mean, yeah. he just was um, such a, a, a normal person um, that, that that I gotta believe in my mind is like one of the most major accomplishments to be able to be that rarefied, that special, and yet make everybody around you feel like, oh, he's just one of, he's just like me. Um, and I think that's what was so appealing to people. He, he embodied that American sense of aspiration and, and, and exploration and wanting to be better, and yet always reminded us that he was just one of us.
0: A book recommendation today is John Glenn, a memoir uh, written by John and, and Nick Taylor right after he landed on the shuttle. comes out in 1999. It's a comprehensive; it's everything in John Glenn's life, an honest assessment of really you know one of the great Americans of the 20th and 21st century. Someone that'll be remembered for a long time. It took us too long to do this episode, and it's why we called it John Glenn versus the world. Because he left the world twice, he beat, he beat the world from the little town of New Concord, Ohio. So we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to, to buy that, that memoir from Amazon. Again, uh, a really good read. That'll do it for today, guys. Uh, episode 3 will be here at the end of the month. We're doing shows every other Sunday. Uh, and We'll be back with the story of Ohio versus opioids. We'll look at the history of the opioid crisis here in Ohio how it started, uh, how it devastated the state and really the country and what's being done now to alleviate those issues. Slow going when it comes to the opioid crisis, but we want to figure out how it happened and what we can do about it. Uh, Thanks again to my guests, my gosh, Keith Eberly, Bruce Carlson, go listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, Herb Asher and and Trevor Brown from uh, Ohio State were fantastic. I I couldn't have done the show without you guys, so thank you so much. And go visit the John and Annie Glenn Home in New Concord. JohnGlennHome.org, one of our sites with the Ohio History Connection. And you can always learn more. Uh, and we ask you, you know, this show, if you're into John Glenn, you can go learn more here in Ohio. Take the trip to, to New Concord right there off of I-70 in eastern Ohio. And definitely go listen to Bruce's podcast. Again, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Go listen to his 1984 episode, he goes into so much more detail about Glenn's campaign, about that race, its similarities with 2020. Uh, really good stuff, and again, I thank him for joining us. And go rate and review the show. Uh, and, you know, follow us on Instagram at Ohio v the World Podcast. Our Facebook discussion is, is always up. We'd love for you to share this episode if you could. Uh, if you want a t-shirt or you have show ideas, email us at OhioVetheWorld at gmail.com. And please follow us on Twitter uh, at OhioVetheWorld. Uh, We've still got a long way to go with our Twitter followers, so that would really help. Uh, Also, an announcement, I am a father, a new father. Miss Ohio v. The World gave birth um, last week, and and we couldn't be happier. Uh, So thank you guys so much for all the well wishes, and we're looking forward to that adventure uh, moving forward. So thank you so much. We'll see you guys in two weeks for Episode 3, Ohio vs. Opioids.